Welcome. You're listening to the podcast where we interview founders innovating at the near frontier, whose companies will give you a glimpse of the future. Near Frontier is brought to you by Cantos, a venture firm that invests in world-positive deep tech startups at Pre-Seed and Seed. To learn more, visit us at cantos.vc. Today, we're joined by Anand Parikh, founder and CEO of Fife Therapeutics. Fife combines precision nutrition, therapeutics, and digital health to deliver a cancer-fighting program designed to deprive tumors of the nutrients they need to grow while providing optimal nutritional support to healthy tissues. And while it might seem crazy, foodist medicine is not a new concept. Fife was born from three leading research teams with three separate discoveries coming together around this one big idea that we can use metabolism to beat cancer. You might've even heard of some of Fife's scientific co-founders who include Lou Cantley, one of the world's leading researchers in cancer metabolism, who many suspect is up for a future Nobel Prize based on his discoveries, Sid McCurgy, author of The Leading Books on Cancer, The Gene and Emperor of All Maladies, and Karen Vowsden, a cancer researcher and former director of biopharmaceutical company Bristol Myers Squibb. It's clear that there are years and years of reproducible scientific research powering Fife. It's the first company of its kind to combine nutrition, more colloquially food, with drugs to enhance therapeutic effect. We're lucky to have Anand here with us today. He was formerly CFO at digital health company Verta Health before jumping deeper into biotech with Fife. You'll see that his unique background makes him the perfect person to lead this not quite biotech, not quite healthcare company. Let's get into it. All right, spoiler alert, everyone. Anand is not an MD. He's actually a JD. So I'm curious, Anand, how did you end up at Verda in the first place? And then what led you to co-found Fife? All right, so great story around this. I was actually almost an MD. I was very close to being an MD. Like every other good brown kid, I was going to go to medical school. And then I worked in politics for a year or so, realized that most of the people who were doing stuff that I wanted to do were lawyers, not doctors. So I like applied to law school, went to law school, took the LSAT, applied to law school, went to law school very quickly. Funny story about that. My dad, the day I graduated law school, told me, Anand, you know your MCAT's still good for another couple of years. <laughs> so legitimately, that's happened. There's two funny parts about that. First of all, I just, tons of debt, just got out of law school. I was pretty proud of that accomplishment. Clearly, he would have preferred the medical school route. But the second funny part about that is my dad worked at a convenience store for 30 years. How the hell did he know what the expiry date on an MCAT was or that my MCAT score was good enough where I could get me into medical school? I still Oh, he knew. He just knew. Apparently, Indian parents know more about the MCATs than like the kids themselves. But anyway, so, okay, I'm at a law firm. It's a large law firm in San Francisco, much like many others. And I remember I got this review one year. And I got this review that said, we love you, clients love you, you're doing great work, but you take too much initiative. And I remember sitting there <laughs> being like, what? Like, how is that? They're like, yeah, you take too much initiative. You like email clients to make sure things are good. You're like sending emails without checking with the partners. And 
I remember at that very second thinking, I'd already thought this isn't the right job for me. But at that very second, I was like, I'm out. Like, this is just not for me. For various life reasons, like I'm an immigrant. I grew up poor. All I know is how to take initiative. Like, that's what I know. And it was just against my fabric to be working there. So basically, I had a friend, a guy called Andrew Beebe, who's now at Obvious Ventures. Andrew had been kind of giving me some advice on what I could do next. And then about a few months down the road after I talked to Andrew, I got a cold email from him being like, you should talk to Sami Inkinen. He's thinking about starting a company in diabetes. I think it would be great. Met Sami, talked to him, and then joined Verta. Started off as the chief of staff, did everything, moved offices, moved boxes, which I'd never done. Also sold our first client, sold our three largest clients. I think we raised about $150 million while I was there. Ended up leading legal finance and HR. Had an amazing time with a great group of people and learned how to build a company. You know, learned all the different pieces what people management really is, what, what strategy is, what banging your head up against the door and failing a lot of times is, what it actually feels like. Because it's very different what it actually feels like versus what you think it feels like. It's a lot more gut-wrenching, but it's also a lot better when you win. So anyway, that was Verta. And then Vinod Kosler reached out to me when I was at Verta. wasn't thinking about leaving, had no plans to leave, we just raised the Series C, I think. And Lauren and I were expecting our first child. And Vinod reached out to me, asked me to go invest at KV. I said, no, thank you. Not really my cup of tea. I like building companies. And he introduced me to a bunch of scientists who wanted to do a meal delivery service for cancer. <laughs> I said, sounds like a horrible idea. Nerds asked me to take the meeting. And what I realized was, yeah, that the meal delivery service was a stupid idea, but that the science behind it was world-changing, that it had the potential to change the trajectory of humanity's fight with this disease. And I actually told them no the first time. They asked me to come co-found the company with them. And uh, I said no, because we were having our first kid and all this stuff. And then I remember I was sitting in the shower of my house in Oakland and I couldn't get the Kaplan-Meier curves from one of the papers out of my brain. And when you have like a idea like that, that you can't get out of your brain, I just realized I got to fuck it. I've got to do this. And so we did, you know, no money, nothing in the bank, a, a co-founder, first employee. We built it from the ground up. Yeah, it was interesting. And Vinod ended up, and Coastal Ventures ended up becoming involved in the company, of course. Yes, that's right. They were, they were already thinking about investing and they ended up investing in the company and have invested in all of our subsequent rounds. Alex Morgan from Coastal sits on our board. Yeah, we, we love those guys and are very grateful for that. Yeah, and shout out to Alex for, for co-investors in, in more than a couple of companies at this point. Well, I'm curious, what was it like Verta, of course, is, is digital health oriented. What was it like moving from that sort of software centricity to therapeutics? It drives me nuts, I would say, to this day. I'm a very impatient person, and therapeutics are a place that require a lot of patience. 
you know, some software developers or some software focused companies would say healthcare is a place that requires a lot of patience. So I was already in, you know, the software side of healthcare that required some patience, but therapeutics is really slow. So I've had to, I've had to readjust expectations of what's capable of what's possible over a period of time. But I think the other thing that I've like also enjoyed is that we've rethought the model of what a therapeutics company can be. So a lot of therapeutics companies are just drug developers. Like, yeah, we, we develop drugs. We have drugs that we develop, but we also have precision nutrition interventions that we develop and software that we develop. So it's almost like we are three companies in one. And I think that helps paper over some of my impatience, at least. I think it lets that person inside of me that wants to go fix everything all at once. Well, there's almost like there's three companies to fix instead of just one. So it allows me to, to keep going from there. But I will say, I think the people who work in therapeutics are brilliant, incredibly committed to patients, and are all in it for the right reasons. But I think there's some, there's some regulatory reform needed in order to help us move faster so that we can get life-saving therapies in patients' hands with less friction. And I think there are very easy wins that can decrease friction but keep safety high. Absolutely agree. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into more of the structure of the business later. But you know, as, as a teaser, when we first met, I was like, Fife is so weird. And to me, that's awesome because weird, different means that you're coming in with some totally new model. There's probably some consilience of, of different fields that maybe haven't been combined in this way before. And like that is if you study the technology of or the history of technological disruptions, that is the recipe. Like that is almost always the archetype of the companies that end up becoming the largest over time. They're completely challenging the norms. They're combining two fields that haven't existed or more that haven't existed before. And when I saw Fife, I was like, wait, hold on. It's it's therapeutics, it's meal delivery, and probably also like digital health. It's like, it's so weird. And I loved it. And a lot of other people (laughs) had to explain this to some of our investors sometimes. And they'd be like, what? You're investing, you're a deep tech investor investing in a meal delivery company. I'm like, yeah, but this is why it's cool. And anyway, I just, it it is, you're right. Totally unique in many ways. And and some people are going to think it's really strange. I think that's great. I I think that over time, they're going to realize that this is a new paradigm that's really going to drive patient outcomes. And that's the goal, right? You said it, drive patient outcomes. I'm not sure that a lot of biotech or pharma companies think about driving out. I think they do in a lip service sense, but I don't think they realize that today their business is delivering profits, but tomorrow their business is going to be delivering outcomes. Because soon the payers are going to say, no, we're not going to pay for drugs where only two out of every 10 people respond or else you've got to give it to us on a risk-bearing basis. I think that these biopharma companies have been living a little high on the hog for a long time. And I think, unfortunately, if they don't realize that they're in that outcomes business, not in the make a pill, sell it business, it's going to be ugly for them in a few years. Yeah, I think back to, I don't talk about it much, but I am a recovering revenue cycle consultant. I worked for Huron Healthcare before moving to San Francisco and getting into tech. And 
in 2010, we were at the end of a project, sort of had a Q&A with all the young analysts and the CFO of this multi-billion dollar hospital system. And we were really driving in on this point, like how do they make decisions? And, and he ultimately sort of broke down and said, look, I've been doing this for my entire career. I forget what it's 25, 30 years. He's like, I've had a heck of a lot of conversations about cost. I can probably count on one hand how many times we've talked about quality when I'm communicating with the payers. And it broke my heart and just honestly made me depressed about the entire American healthcare system. And it was one of the things that drove me to leave my consulting job and move to San Francisco. One day over a beer, I'll tell you some of the stories I heard when I was on the road at Verta from payers. It I don't want to repeat them here because I'll never take my phone. <laughs> yeah, we need yeah, there's, there's some depressing things that I've heard in conference rooms that yeah tell you about the real motivations behind U.S. healthcare delivery and reimbursement. Yeah, there's a lot of misaligned incentives for sure in the pharmaceutical industry. Before we talk a little bit more about these three types of businesses that Fife is integrating into one and what makes Fife weird, let's talk about the mission. We all like to say Fife is building the fourth pillar of cancer treatment with food or precision nutrition. What does that all mean? Yeah. So the basic idea is that until now, the only way you can treat cancer is through surgery, radiotherapy, so x-rays, or drugs, be they small molecules or biologics, right? That's the way you treat cancer. But there are many other diseases where we've recognized the power of precision nutrition interventions to shape, manage, or even reverse, treat, cure that disease, right? Think about diabetes. Think about cardiometabolic diseases. Think about irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, even autoimmune diseases, pediatric epilepsy, inborn errors of metabolism. The list sort of goes on and on. But for some reason in cancer, this has been ignored. And so what we are doing is bringing that lens of precision genomics, of thinking about how that those alterations in oncogenes actually affect nutrient and metabolic pathways, and then how can we use those differentials between nutrient use and production to create vulnerabilities? So how can we use that delta to really strike the tumor at its heart? And that's kind of what we do with thinking about it in the same ways as many drug developers, right? We're thinking about what is a vulnerability that the tumor has. It's just, we're trying to cut off the source of energy to the tumor. That's nutrients. Yeah, starving the cancer and not starving the patient. Starving the cancer, not starving the patient. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, one of the ways I think about it is that cancer is sort of this autonomous organism within ourselves that is made of your own cells, but it's hijacked the process. And as an organism, it's metabolizing, it's growing, it needs food. And if I'm describing Fyth to a layperson, by the way, I very much think of myself as a layperson here too. I would say that what Fyth is doing is trying to figure out specifically what food that organism, that, that tumor is using and tweaking the input such that you are, again, starving the tumor without starving the patient. Because it is, it is different 
food, food effectively that we are eating versus the tumor, right? It's a great way of putting it. I think the other analogy I've used is that of a runaway car. A tumor is kind of this runaway car, right? And the oncogenic mutations like HER2 or KRAS or all these things that the drug companies are solely focused on, if you look at those, by drugging them, you're basically just telling the runaway car to take its foot off the gas pedal. You're saying, take your foot off the gas pedal. But there are other ways that you can stop a runaway car. You can cut the line between the engine and the transmission, which is essentially attacking the metabolic pathways, like something like methyltrexate does, or you can cut the gas to the gas tank. That's what we do. And we're not saying do this, cut the gas to the gas tank and don't do the other things. We're saying do all of them at once. And that's our approach. We try to cut the fuel to the, to the car, right? Well, well, so food as medicine is not a new concept and certainly not for cancer, given Otto Warburg's research and tumor sugar consumption, all he did about figuring out what type of metabolism cancer undergoes. It's definitely been a long time, many decades since that research. Why is food as medicine still a pretty nascent concept and why build fight now? Yeah, so it's actually thanks to Warburg that we had this idea initially. And then Warburg's idea was essentially that sugar was the basis of all tumors and that you can starve all tumors by starving them of sugar. So like everyone, you know, the sort of keto mafia that exists on Twitter will insist that, you know, if we all just went on ketogenic diet, your tumor would melt and we'd all be great, right? It's not that simple. Cancer is not one disease, it's a thousand diseases. And this is what Warburg could have never possibly known because precision genomics didn't exist when Warburg was doing his work in the 30s. But you can draw a direct line from Warburg to Lou Cantley, Sid Mukherjee, Karen Valsden, my co-founders, who have done work over the last 10 years to show that by looking at those oncogenic mutations, by looking at the organ of origin of a tumor, by looking at the drug response and how that influences the metabolism of the tumor, you can then figure out what nutrients should you stop. So Warburg was a little simplistic in being it's just one God molecule. Each tumor, based on its own genotype, based on its own organ of origin, is going to have very different energetic needs. And we can now see those. With RNA sequencing, we can see what is being expressed at what levels. And, and then we look at that and create precision nutrition interventions that starve the tumor of exactly what we see. And we do it all using a machine learning model because obviously it's too much data for any one person to crunch. But you sort of ask like, well, it hasn't been done before in cancer. Why not? Warburg was too simplistic. Today, I think we're at sort of day zero with the advent of genomics and showing this. The future, I think, and where we'll be 20 years from now, hopefully, or hopefully sooner, is where it's an N of one. So like Ami has KRAS wild type colorectal cancer and is being treated with bevacizumab. And Ian has KRAS wild type colorectal cancer and being treated with bevacizumab. But we look at the RNA sequencing of their tumor and we see that there are differential nutrient predilections for their individual tumors and we can personalize to the N of one. I don't think the regulatory pathway is there yet. It, it would be too difficult, but like, that's where the world is going. And that's where we should be going, I think. Definitely. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how 
different each individual has like their sugar responses, metabolism responses. You can even just track this with a continuous glucose monitor. Brown rice may be great for you, but white rice may be better for me than brown rice. And it's shocking because you have all this standard dietary information that says that one thing is better than another just based on their macros. And it's really not the case when you consider genetics and, and all of that factor. So add the complexity of tumors to that and the, the combinations are really very complex. Absolutely. And imagine taking that down to the level of not even macronutrients like protein, fat, vitamins, and lipids, but imagine taking it down to even smaller levels. So thinking about the 20 amino acids that comprise a protein and then trying to modulate each individual one. Think about all the lipids. All the, There's about 280, we estimate, that you can modulate. And I think every one of them, every tumor is going to have a different need, energetic need for those. So we're excited to figure this world out. Definitely. What shocks me about Fife every time I talk to you guys is that pretty much every component can be a business in and of itself. This machine learning algorithm platform, you can make that its own business and just spend all your time looking at genotype and nutrition profiles and matching them together. But Fife is actually three complex businesses in one. It's this unique mix of therapeutics meets digital health meets meal delivery. Can you tell us more about this model and why you realize that you need to do all of it in one company? Yeah, God, sometimes I wish I didn't. But the reason is, so if you think about patients in cancer, they have really high motivation because it's a life-threatening disease. And so if you want to drive adherence to what is admittedly a complicated and non-standard diet, right? Like if I ask someone to deplete serine, glycine, and proline, even if their motivation is really high because they're facing a life-threatening disease, they wouldn't know where to stop. The friction is so high, right? So you want to increase motivation whilst reducing friction. And then you want to provide feedback to the patient through data by telling them, hey, what you're doing is working because that drives all of us. And so it's that loop. I kind of think of it as increased motivation, decreased friction, and then there's an arrow back from the result equals adherence. And then there's an arrow back to a motivation that talks about monitoring and feedback. And that's why we built it this way. Because the food, delivering the food reduces the friction for the patient. But having the software and a real patient, a real person behind the software increases the motivation and it allows us to provide monitoring and feedback. The software does that. So it's all in service of greater adherence. And why do it that way? I think when you are doing something that has the potential to change an entire indication, that burden is heavy. I don't want to fuck this up because if there is a way that we can use nutrients to increase survival, reduce the cancer burden across the global population, and we fuck this up as a team, like we're going to live with that for the rest of our lives. So I don't want to leave a stone unturned. I don't want to do anything that makes it harder for patients and have compliance be the issue. If the biology is not going to work, fine, I can live with that. But I couldn't live with the fact 
that we didn't do absolutely everything we could to help these patients who are in a very, very difficult physiological state to comply. Absolutely. Yeah, no pressure in the team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I tell everyone. I talk to every single person who joins the company and I tell them that. What we are doing is not just important, it's a moral imperative. And I'm not arrogant enough to think that if this is a truth, that someone else won't come along 20 years later and find it. Someone will. I believe in human ingenuity. But the problem is within that 20-year span, it'll be really hard for companies to get funded. Everyone will remember, well, if Lou Cantley, Sid Mukherjee, Oliver Maddox, and Karen Valsden couldn't do it, what the hell makes you think you're going to do it? And it'll just make their lives that much harder. So we have to succeed. If there is a way here through nutrient modulation in cancer, we have to succeed. How are you separating these components operationally then, since part of your day is spending time in the therapeutic side, licensing drugs, navigating the FDA, dealing with all the regulatory headache? That's very different from monitoring the supply chain and getting the kitchens up and working and then interacting with dietitians and you know the software component of, of Fife, which I actually just saw the app on the App Store today, which I was really excited to download. But they're all such different businesses. How do you manage them operationally? And the whole team is remote. So I'd be curious to hear how that works as well. I think thinking about it from different levels, like from the strategic level, I try to hire really, really smart people who are motivated, ambitious, intelligent. And I sort of let them go. And I say, I'm going to get out of your way. I'm going to give you a clear idea of what I want you to deliver. And then how you choose to deliver it is up to you. Uh, And I give them a lot of ownership. And then where I spend a lot of my time is building a unified culture across these very ambitious people and making sure that they work collaboratively with each other. And so that's where I spend a lot of time. And For example, my head of product has a background in growth marketing, right? Like he's a a software guy, but he has his background in growth marketing. Now, clinical trial recruitment in some ways is an awareness growth marketing problem. And so I've got him, even though that's not his job, working closely with our head of ClinOps because, you know, she's been recruiting in a more traditional way from academic medical centers and places like that. And both of them have such little ego where they're down to help each other, they're down to work together, and they want to learn from each other, right? And so I think that's the way I try to do it. It doesn't always work perfectly, but I think it's all about setting the right culture and the right tone, and then letting people kind of feel free and empowered from there. We'll get into culture building in a little bit, but before moving on, I want to spend a little more time thinking about these three different components of Fife, nutrition, therapeutics, software. How do you think about revenue and margins with these very different prongs? So these three components, again, being precision nutrition, drugs, and software, right? I wish there was a world where I could just give the unified package, get paid fairly for all three. Unfortunately, the way our healthcare system works is that drugs are reimbursed at a far, far higher rate than other interventions. So what we do is we basically take the aspect of our intervention that's considered a drug. So this is small molecule inhibitors, you know, amino acids, that kind of stuff. And then we plan on getting that reimbursed as a drug by the payers. And then 
we will give the other parts away for free. I'll repeat that. We will give the, the precision nutrition and the software away for free. And you might say like, what, why? Because I care about the outcomes. Because I believe that long-term, I'm in an outcomes business, not in a short-term profit generation business. And that for me to change the paradigm, I need to have as many people be successful in the real world on the Fife program as can possibly be successful. And, you know, we're lucky enough to have investors like you guys who get it, who get why I would give up 10 percentage points of gross margin to give away food and software for free in furtherance of outcomes. Is that helping at all feedback into compliance? For sure, right? Like there are other drug companies out there. I can give you multiple examples whose drugs are required to be taken with food, but they don't supply the food. And what that tells me is they don't give a shit about the outcomes in the real world. So I, I hate to pick on poor Biomarin, but Biomarin has a drug called Kuvan. Kuvan is their crown jewel. It must be taken with a phenylalanine-restricted diet per the label. But the best Biomarin does is just put up a website and say, here you go, here's a website, here's what a low phenylalanine diet is, here's five recipes, see you later, right? I think that patients who use that drug deserve better, and I think my patients deserve better. So we're taking that plunge. Like, look, the last thing I want to do is produce food on a daily basis and ship it to patients. Like, it's a pain. It's a difficult, labor-intensive business. But it's what feeds my patients, it's what keeps them healthy, and it's what allows the treatment to do to do its work. So well, we you've do- gotten at a question I'm sure every venture capitalist you've ever spoken to about Fife has asked, which is why wouldn't or can't a patient just make these diets at home? And if they could, I would love that, right? Like I would love that because it would make my life a lot easier. The, uh, the hard part is if I said to you, go make a serine glycine proline depleted diet at home, you first of all, you wouldn't know where to start. And even if you did know where to start, you'd get it wrong. And I know you'd get it wrong because there's some secret sauce, I'll say, to how you dose these things, to how you formulate these things into amino acids that can interconvert. There's all kinds of things that it took us lots of time to figure out through lots and lots of iteration and going down the wrong path. Now we finally got to a formulation for you know, that particular program that works. So if you just say that to patients, you're going to end up kind of nowhere. And even if they ended up figuring out a meal that worked for them, that, you know, they were actually doing it right, it's probably going to be like one dish. And could you imagine having the same thing every single day? Whereas you actually have a variety. I know because I've, I've had it. You shipped a bunch to us during diligence. You have a variety of meals. Can you tell us a little what they look like? Yeah, we've got a world-class group of chefs in Boulder, Colorado, that uses top quality ingredients to ship meals fresh to our patients. Fresh. They're not frozen. We could have made them frozen. It would have been easier, again. But we wanted to have these people who are suffering with this disease get fresh food. So we ship them fresh to their doors every day. I think the other cool thing is we constantly are learning which meals are most popular, which are least popular for given indications. 
and we'll cycle them in and out. The other thing we've done from the beginning is make all of the meals modular. So what that means is that breakfast has the same macronutrient, micronutrient composition as lunch, as dinner. And that means that they can all interchangeably be switched. So if you really want to eat a meal X for every one of your meals, then you can because they're engineered that way. Or if you want meal X and meal Y to alternate, that's fine too. Can you tell us a little more about how these meals are regulated? Because a common trap for all biotech companies is therapeutic just takes years and years and years and billions of dollars to develop, much less get it into patients. Whereas food, I mean, we all eat food every day. We even tried the Fife meals. How does that work? What is the timeline like for trials in that case? Yeah, so the regulatory scheme here is slightly different from a traditional therapeutic. The regulatory scheme here, when we're talking about precision nutrition, is that typically the initial trials will be done in humans, and they require institutional review board approval, but they don't require an IND. An IND is an investigational new drug application, and that's submitted to the FDA, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to prepare, takes months or years to be approved, and then you've got to submit everything to the FDA from then on. For us, we get to do the early phase trials in humans without that IND, and then if we, ha- if we start to see a signal, if we start to see some exciting data, then we can go to the FDA and flip into a more traditional drug development pathway, but hopefully at a later stage. So we wouldn't have to do, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. Maybe we flip into a phase two or a phase three immediately because we've already done some of this work, not under an IND. For those that geek out about sort of company strategy and structure and and diligence, people who know me might know that I love this archetype of business where a technological innovation leads to a business model innovation that is in some way counterposition to the incumbents. So like they might acknowledge it's obviously better, but for some microeconomic reason, it doesn't really make sense for them to adopt it. And that was absolutely true in this very way with Fife because the, the modality of your treatment regulatorily allows you to move a little faster. Yes. And I love that about Fife. And iterate. Like we get to iterate. As I mentioned, it took us so many tries to figure out how to deplete a diet effectively of serine, glycine, and proline took a long time. And if we had needed to do all of that under an IND, it just would have been impossible. It would have cost too much money. It would have taken too long. You know, we'd still be here two years on talking about how to deplete serine, glycine, and proline instead of talking about, well, we're going to have human data using this intervention in 12 to 18 months. You alluded to it earlier that it, it is not, the, the programs are not always meals. Sometimes there's amino acid sachet that they might put in a, a shake or even mix with water. And you had mentioned that in that case, the amino acid is treated as a therapeutic and we expect will be reimbursed as such. What does it look like in combination therapies where maybe a patient is getting someone else's drug and fights amino acid sachet versus the the program where there's a meal and in your case, an in-licensed drug? Like what, what do the different programs look like? So our first program, which is the one you're referring to, which you talked about second, involves a, a PI3 kinase inhibitor that we in-licensed. 
together with an insulin suppressing diet. So that has a traditional, very traditional looking drug in it, right? It's a small molecule, it's a tablet. So it looks kind of like what you envision a drug looks like. The second program in many ways is the more interesting one. And that's the one where the dietary component is a diet devoid of protein. And then what we believe will be regulated as a therapeutic is a sachet of amino acids, as you mentioned. And that ends up being the protein component of the individual's diet. And it's intended very specifically to be formulated such that it will not, such that it will deplete the serum levels of serine, glycine, and proline. So that is what will be regulated as a drug. And what we plan to take to the FDA and say, hey, here's a drug. Some of the data in healthy volunteers looks like this. Some of the data in cancer patients looks like this. And uh, what do you think? And then from the patient sort of experience perspective, the, the user experience, they would then also be interacting with Fyth via the digital health component. What does that look like? Yeah, that's right. So they will be going in to get their chemotherapy. They will also get the Fyth intervention that is this low-protein diet plus an amino acid sachet. And then they interact on the software with our registered dietitian. And these registered dietitians are Fyth-trained, Fyth employees who understand our intervention very specifically and can help the patient with everything from you know, adherence, like, hey, I'm having some gastrointestinal symptoms, can you help me, to I'm going to go to my daughter's bachelorette party, real life example there. Going to my daughter's bachelorette party, can you help me figure out how to you know, adhere while I'm in Nashville? So that's how they can help. And then the software has a bunch of content, a bunch of reminders, things that are useful for the patient in their cancer journey generally. You know, we're like, if we're going to make you use this software, you might as well have it be useful for you. And one of the other interesting things about the digital health component is that it is also advantageous for the clinicians, right? The oncologists, once they're familiar with Fife, they're going to say, well, on, wait, you're giving away the software that helps my patient comply where, you know, some of the nutritional questions, they can go to a licensed nutritionist rather than coming to me. You know, if, if I were an oncologist, I'd rather like to <laughs> have my patients on fight. Makes my life you easier. Know, you know what's amazing is there's actually, Ian, you've like stumbled upon something that not a lot of people know about, but there is actually peer-reviewed papers done to like incredible degrees of fidelity that show just having very basic symptom reporting questionnaires delivered weekly to a patient after chemotherapy appointments has a massive improvement on survival. That improvement on survival is akin to drugs. It's like months or years. And it's because you're actually closing the loop with these patients. What we do right now makes very little sense to me. We infuse cytotoxic poison which is what chemotherapy is, into patients' veins. And then we say, bye-bye, see you later. And we're surprised when they come back to the emergency room complaining of all these horrible symptoms. Well, like, yeah, fuck yeah. You just infuse poison into someone's veins. Like, what do you think is going to happen? But right now, we don't do much about that. And so we found, actually, that our app is one of the few 
places of support where these patients can go in between that. And we've avoided some pretty nasty and potentially unnecessary hospitalizations by just being available for these patients. So I'm really excited about that potential as well, even though it wasn't what we set out to build. <laughs> like that, we're doing this just to help with adherence to the drug and the, and the precision nutrition. But it, it's turning out that this may have quite a bit, the software alone has quite a lot of impact as well. Does a patient need to be on a Fife therapeutic regimen to be using the app and availing themselves of some of those advantages? They don't. So we have actually opened up the app for anyone to sign up. You can have cancer, you can be a caregiver of someone who has cancer, and you'll get access to all of the materials that I mentioned. We're also developing a community feature for people with cancer, which we'll be rolling out soon. There's content, education, medication reminders, structured symptom reporting, and you'll get access to our registered dietitians. You may not do that forever, but for now, we're leaving it open to folks because we're pretty excited about the impact that it's having within that community. And it's a drastically underserved community. Yeah, I know. I've had a, a number of friends work colleagues, acquaintances, co-investors who, you know, they email me and they say, I'm not a bio-investor. I'm not interested in Fife professionally, but I have a family member who has cancer. And I'm wondering if one, they might be relevant to a clinical trial that Fife is running. And two, if you just have any nutritional recommendations, and I'll usually send them to you and to you personally, and you're, you're responding and speaking with them. It's been really fulfilling to be able to send people your way even if they're not going to be on Fife Therapeutics anytime soon. I'll tell you, it's one of the most fulfilling parts of my job is being able to help someone. So, you know, from the clinical trial perspective, I'm not allowed to talk to those patients on a regular basis. But if it's a referral from a friend or someone else in need, then I love doing that, being able to help in whatever way we can. It's, you know, it's just really... It just feels great, right? Totally selfishly, it feels great. And if we can help someone, all the better. Now, it's not purely a cost driver or necessarily 100% altruistic. There's also this benefit that it might help in enrollment and trials down the road too, right? Absolutely, right. Yeah, we're trying to enroll trials. We have multiple trials ongoing. Say so this is the one, of my, one of the most challenging things, if not the most challenging thing about biotech generally is just clinical trial enrollment and the academic medical centers as gatekeepers in many cases. And that's very challenging. But yeah, of course, the more people who know about our trials or who are aware of our trials, the better. So the last part of fight that we haven't talked about as much is this machine learning component that tells you what nutrition to map with what patient genotype and cancer You've mentioned serine, thymine, all these amino acids. How do you actually figure that out, figure out that these are the amino acids or the different nutritional profiles and match them to patients in a precision medicine way? This is so cool. This is like, I think, what one of the lasting legacies of Fife will be beyond the patient lives, but it's, it's this software we're developing called MetaboS. It is a machine learning system that takes organ of origin, takes genotype of the tumor, it takes drug response data, and into that, it can then predict nutrient vulnerabilities. 
to look at the entire map of metabolism, see how those how those things, you know, organ of origin, genotype, and drugs influence that map of metabolism, and then it can spit out for any given set of those conditions, those three conditions that I mentioned, it can spit out nutrient vulnerabilities. And it's so cool. It like literally can show you for healthy cells, the delta between what a healthy cell uses of let's say alanine and what it produces of alanine. There's very little delta. They're basically equivalent. But once you get to cancer cells, you start seeing this big dysregulation that either they're producing way too much or they're using far more than they're producing. And when you see a delta like that, where a cancer cell or a particular subtype of a cancer cell is using more than it's producing, we're like, bingo. We're going to take that away from you. And basically, you know, the way I describe it, it's quite a violent description, but it's like punching the tumor in the face while you pull the rug out from underneath it, right? It's really hitting it in as many ways as you can. And I'll tell you, you know, we developed this machine learning platform thinking, well, how good is it actually going to be? What are the predictions going to be? Are they going to be validated? And not only did it come back with some of the predictions that it took my co-founders 10 years in the lab to validate, but it's come up with many, many new ones. So many that we don't have the ability to test. Like, I need more hands. I, I literally need more, like 100 humans in the lab just to test all the predictions that are coming out of it. It's insane. So this is the pipeline of life in the future, right? This is, we're going to be, through, for the rest of my lifetime, we're going to be going through this set of predictions that it's generating. Not only in, in, in oncology for now, but I think in the future in other disease states as well. Yeah, this is one of the, people always talk about AI drug discovery as something that you throw an algorithm at a chemical space and it comes up with miracle drugs that will treat various pathways. But this is a really cool AI stuff where you're just looking at data, biological data, looking at the deltas between healthy cells and tumor cells, and that's what you make an actionable treatment on. It's not some miracle drug you're finding. It's just looking at how you can use things that exist to fix that gap, which is fascinating and also just so much more actionable. And there are really interesting use cases for repurposing that we found as well. So sometimes what we will do is take one of those hits, those nutrient vulnerability hits that we find, and then we do a CRISPR screen against every FDA-approved drug, and we'll find further left shifts, right? So where nutrient vulnerability by itself was super powerful, add in maybe this very random drug that you're like, wait, why that one? And then you start to see this massive left shift, which is what we're looking for, right? You already have a few of those. Yeah, we have a few of those that are in development right now. I'm not allowed to talk about them because the patents haven't been written yet, but like, man, it's really exciting. And we'll find out what the hit rate is, right? Over time, we'll find out what the hit rate is for the system, but it's looking pretty good from a preclinical standpoint for us. Where is the data coming from to fuel this platform? Yeah, it's large publicly available data sets, things like TCGA, DEPMAP, single cell sequencing, stuff like that, that we're inputting into this. You know, there's no, there are some proprietary data sets that we have from our experiments as well, that we feed in, but I've got to believe that the vast majority are publicly available or at least widely accessed data sets. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in the future as your clinical trials currently that you're doing with Fife Regiments 
are fulfilled and you get data back from that and you can kind of almost do like a second iteration of these studies. And it'd be really interesting to see what comes out of that. Uh, for sure. Like what I always say is, is that right now the machine learning system is spitting out, let's say a thousand hits of those thousand hits. Maybe we'll pick a hundred that we want to test in the lab of those hundred, maybe 75 will work and we'll take the 25 best and move them into in vivo models. Right. And maybe of those, we'll take the 10 best and move them into the clinic. And initially the hit rate will be 30 or 40%. But then over time, that's going to that's gonna increase further and further. And even at 30 or 40% on potentially million dollar or billion dollar programs each, pretty good hit rate. Right? Like you can reinvest feeling confident that way. Are you interfacing at all with large pharma companies? And if so, what does that look like? So interestingly, not yet. I think most of them are so focused on just sort of incremental thing right now, like finding a mutation, drugging it, finding a mutation, drugging it, because it, it's accretive to revenue immediately. And Wall Street understands it. Wall Street gets it, right? If you were the CFO of Novartis and you said, I'm going to take a billion dollars and set it aside into precision nutrition interventions, Wall Street would just crush you. They would crush you. They just don't have that foresight yet. I think it's going to take some really positive data coming out, and then I think suddenly there'll be capital flushing in. What's interesting is most of these pharma companies all had nutrition divisions. They all had nutrition divisions. You know, AbbVie was the pharmaceutical division of Abbott, which was a medical nutrition company. Novartis had a nutrition division. I think Merck, plenty of these, Pfizer, plenty of these companies had them. They just ended up spinning them off or getting rid of them so that they could look more like pure play pharmaceutical companies to investors who decided they didn't want, you know, a conglomerate of animal health, you know, human health, all these different things. Yeah, it's interesting how the investors end up driving so many strategic decisions. Absolutely. I mean, you started having these big, these sort of mega cap funds who are like, I don't want to invest in a pharmaceutical company and a nutrition company. If I want to invest in a nutrition company, I'll invest in a pure play nutrition company. And I think you've seen what's driven a lot of those spinoffs, right, over the years is that kind of logic where you have maybe a different margins between the businesses as well. And they want to make the P&L look a little bit better. Yeah, when I when I was at SoFi, this was actually we looked into buying a small bank, and we ultimately decided not to, even though it would arguably be better for our business operations and the borrowers. We didn't do it because we became convinced that the investors would lower our valuation if we owned a bank. <laughs> they ended up applying to be one many years later, but early on, it, it did drive that decision. Speaking of investors. What was it like fundraising for a company as unique as Byte? It's really interesting. You know, I have some of this experience from Verta where like there were a bunch of people in the early days of Verta who were like, but you're not a healthcare IT company in the traditional sense. And yes, they still use the word IT. And then there were a bunch of people who were like, you're not a healthcare services company. Like you don't own a bunch of doctor's offices. So what are you? And be like, well... We're a world-class diabetes reversal clinic. I mean, like, I don't know what that is. And 
So it was very difficult at the start because we didn't fit into the boxes, right? But then over time, now everyone and their mother has a physician on staff to solve some issue, you know, autoimmune, migraines, you know, hims and hers, row. Everyone's got a physician involved in consumer-focused care. And so over time, fundraising became easier. I think that's sort of our journey. At the beginning, it was difficult. People were like very unsure. The traditional biotech investors were like, you don't look and smell like anything we've ever invested in. I think there are people who are tech bio investors who come at the bio side from a technical understanding of what's possible with technology. And those types of folks have been definitely more receptive. I think once we have human data, it will de-risk it significantly for biotech investors. You know what's interesting about the biotech investors too is all of them tell me that they believe in the science <laughs> to, a, to a person. Well, it's hard not to with your scientific co-founders. Well, that's the point. Some of them will like say, wait, this is a Lou Cantley company. Like, why did I not hear about this? I want to hear about this now. But then they hear that it's the precision nutrition focus. And they're like, wait, I don't, this doesn't look and smell like what I've invested in in the past. But that's okay. As you said early on, Ian, the companies that do something truly transformative often don't look like anything you've ever seen before. You know, when Tesla was trying to put hardware and software together in a car, people thought Elon was nuts, right? Well, not, that hasn't changed. <laughs> yeah, that hasn't changed. Fair enough. But uh, I do think that you've got to think think about things from a first principles perspective rather than a, well, this is how it's done perspective to truly make a big difference in the world. Couldn't agree more. And we're thankful for our co-investors, Kozla, SGG, Future Ventures, KDT, Unshackled, and a few others for, for believing in that with you. It was unique. It constrained the field of potential investors early on, as with many tech bio companies, because IT investors look at you like, you know, they don't understand the bio aspect. And then the biotech investors, as you said, they don't understand the software, AI, and, and maybe the nutrition piece. And so I'm very thankful that you got it done. You just announced $47 million in funding with the Series A. And so where is that funding going to take you? What do the next couple of years look like for Fife? Yeah, the next couple of years are very focused on our clinical trials. So we have really important clinical trials that we think have the potential to revolutionize the field. And that, you know, the data on those trials should be reading out over the next 12 to 18 months. So right now it's about driving awareness of the trials, enrolling patients, helping them stay compliant and adhere, and then having good data to report out in 12 to 18 months. Very excited about that. And I have to ask, what's the all goes right vision for Fife in 10 years? So my team would tell you I'm the king of cheesy analogies. I have horrible, horrible analogies that I repeat over and over again. So the all goes right vision for Fife in 10 years. Base case is that we have revolutionized how oncology is being treated and that we've truly built a fourth pillar of cancer care. That's the base case. That's the base case. I'm here for it. And I hope that... We have 100 competitors at that point. Like I hope there's 100 other companies in the field because we've revolutionized the field to the point where everyone believes, right? And then 
The upside case is that we've also revolutionized other diseases. Cachexia, inborn errors of metabolism are some that we nearer term have our eyes on, but also that even for patients where we haven't come up with a specific precision nutrition intervention, that they're gaining a tremendous amount of value and life extension from the software alone. So I think that's where I'd like to be 10 years from now. Anand, if and when that happens, and let's say Fife makes you and your co-founders billionaires, what do you think you're going to do with the money? All right. So I grew up dirt poor. So I have more now than I ever thought I would ever have. So it kind of is irrespective. It doesn't matter to me. But what I would do is I love taking a piece of land that has been unloved and I like fixing it up. This sounds very strange, but I like taking natural land, like let's say hundreds of acres that has a lot of second growth cedar that isn't native. And I like fixing it, getting rivers running again, getting animals back on the land, having it grow. So I would probably buy a thousand acres or 10,000 acres of messed up land and fix it. <laughs> I love it. One of my dreams is to plant a lot of kelp farms. So you and I one day, there we go, working together, land and sea. Yeah. Do you have any shout outs that you want to give to the listeners? If listeners want to get in trials or if they want to come join the mission, work for Fife, where can they learn more? So if you want to get involved in trials, please go to our website, fifetherapeutics.com. That's F-A-E-T-H therapeutics.com. We have pages for all of our trials, phone numbers, contact forms, whatever you want to do. If you have a loved one who fits one of the criteria for our trials, please send them there. And then in terms of hiring, we're hiring for a number, number of roles, everything from clinical scientists to general business athletes. So, you know, if you love our mission, if you're very excited about what we do, and you're a doer, email me or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. And you can get to fight through Cantos. Our DMs are open on Twitter. I'm at Ian at Cantos.vc. And me is A-M-E-E at Cantos.vc. Or find Natalie Estrella, our talent partner on LinkedIn. We will send you their way. I didn't ask, Anand, where does the name Fife come from? So one of my co-founder, Oliver Maddox, is Welsh. And Fife is actually a Welsh word, and it means nutrient or metabolite. So there you go. It's, it's perfect. I will say, as we sign off, Fife has been particularly special for me because I went down the bio rabbit hole four years ago. And one of the books that got me in that rabbit hole was Sid's The Gene, which I cannot recommend highly enough. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't yet started The Emperor of All Maladies, but it was sort of a, I was a little starstruck when I got introduced to you guys and have now invested in your and Sid and the rest of the company. Me too. I think everyone's a little starstruck when they see Sid, but uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a lovely guy, an incredible physician scientist. And maybe in 18 months, if we're reading out good data, we can get him back on Near Frontier as well. We love that. Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. And thank you so much for joining us today. I know I speak for the whole Cantos team that we're super honored to be involved and can't wait to see what's next for Fife. Thank you for all the support. We wouldn't be here without you. Love you guys. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Near Frontier. 
Links to external content mentioned are available in the show notes and at nearfrontier.com, where you can also find other episodes of the show. To leave feedback or suggest future guests, you can find us on Twitter at Cantos.